Welcome to Pathfinder Academy. Class is now in session. Here are your professors, Caleb and Christian. Good morning, class. You may be seated. Welcome to the book fair. Book fair is where we go over some of the Pathfinder Tales novels uh, published by Tor Publishing. And full disclosure, we were given review copies by a wonderful woman, Diana Griffin. Thank you very much for giving us these review copies. But we were not paid to do these. The agreement was this, that she would send us review copies and that we would receive them. So that is the complete agreement. These will be our honest opinions. Today's book is Pirate's Prophecy, written by Chris A. Jackson. Uh, Chris has a little website, jaxbooks.com. That's J-A-X-books.com, about all the books he's written. He is a decorated author. He is, I think he got a New York Times bestseller of some kind or some sort of award. I don't remember exactly which one. He's got a little blog. He's got a little bits about him. He, they have a, uh, actually, they think they do something along the lines of a podcast or some sort of recording. He plays in a Dungeons and Dragons game with Ed Greenwood, who uh, created D&D Forgotten Realms setting. Who he, he's the DM of the game that he's playing in, so obviously enjoys this as a hobby. Uh, path, well, Pathfinder like games at least. We are going to go through this book. Com- spoilerific. There's gonna be lots of spoilers, so just be aware of that. Uh, we we really want to pre- preface this one with uh, me and Caleb are not literary analysis. <laughs> no, we are not. Uh, we are. I don't even read a lot. I've read a lot more when I was younger. I don't do it much as an adult. And this is just our opinion. But but if. if Oprah and her book club are allowed to talk about stuff, then so are we. <laughs> what a relevant modern reference you've come <laughs> up with there, Christian. Wait, they're not still around? <laughs> <laughs> so a quick little back-of-the-book synopsis is this book's about a crew that were pirates, and they are turned freedom fighters slash spies for the nation of Andoran, I believe. Mm-hmm. They take port, disguised as a trader ship, in a Chalaxian port, which Chalaxian is the devil-aligned, uh, lawful evil kind of nation. By the way, I love that, because then you can say they're Chelish soldiers. I love it so much. Every time I saw the word Chelish, I was like, ooh. Was it just a word you like? Yeah. Chelish. I want that to be my descriptor. Moment. He was a Chelish man. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, they catch wind of a deadly weapon aboard a general ship in the Chelish army that apparently has the power to start a war between the two nations, so they are tasked with infiltrating, finding out what is the weapon, and ultimately neutralizing the threat. We should note there's two actual, there's actually two books that precede this, Pirate's Honor and Pirate's Promise, which we did not read. So this is a look at, this is a look as if you had never read those two books and, and how well did the author, you know, show us those characters and make us interested in them without having the two books worth of history for us. Uh, I honestly, I didn't feel like you 100% needed those two other books to read the story. It might have been made a little better that way if we had read them first, but it's not like there was anything that happened. I was like, what is this? I have literally no idea. I never got that feeling with uh, <laughs> reading just this installment of the series. Hey guys, guess what? This is the first time in history that the word literally has been recorded being used correctly. Literally. <laughs> you know, right now people will say literally just means something of emphasis. He literally killed a thousand men. Well, no, he killed ten men. He literally killed ten men. Okay, that's the correct way to use it. But then the original way to use it was... Uh, don't in, don't in the, patronize our listeners. No, listen, I'm doing I'm this. sure they know how literally works. They watched Archer. No. <laughs> <laughs> listen, everyone uses it wrong. But then it's the, like, they literally killed Caesar. Well, yeah, and then in that play they did, literally, because it's part of literature. So 
Congratulations, Christian. <laughs> you said literally while talking about literature, you used it correctly, super correctly. You should get an award. I don't I don't need one. Your your appreciation's all the award I need. <laughs> Darn right it is. So who are the the only thing I think we were missing from the other two stories was maybe some character development, but I didn't really feel like it was like again, some anything super important. There were times uh, we got- that I was like they were like the stargazer and you should have been like, ooh, but it's like, oh well, okay. There's a few main characters. Uh, Torius is the captain of the ship. His uh, lover is the navigator for the ship. Uh, she is a Naga, an ex-slave Naga, which is, I think, pretty important because uh, Naga are subservient to some other thing, and she was broken free of that. I liked her um, her description in the book because when I was some of these people describe, sometimes you don't get them just right. And uh, when I thought of her, the way she looked, when I ended up looking it up after I'd read like 100, 120 pages, I looked up what a celestial naga is or whatever it was called, the lunar naga. naga, mm-hmm. And it looked just kind of what I thought I was thinking about. It's kind of strange, actually, naga. And another main character is actually not a part of the ship. Um, her name is Vreva, and she runs. She is a sorceress of Calistria. And she runs a very affluent, like, casino bar inside the Chalaxian town, where she uses that to do her spy games and whatnot. You have it written as Reva, sexy sorcerer spy. The three things we need to know about her. <laughs> the but- three S's. <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's go in a little more in-depth about each character. Torius, who, uh, I guess we're going to have arguments how you pronounce everybody's names, but uh, that one, uh, Celeste, is about the only one we'll probably agree on. But Torius, the way I said his name... Uh, he, as the captain, was also an ex-slave. He, I, th- I got the idea he escaped with Celeste as well. Right, right, right. And, of course, what do they do as part of their, they're no longer pirates, they're privateers, and they free slave ships, and they kill everyone aboard. There was a time when, uh, there was a time when they were attacking a slaver ship, and it was like they were killing everybody, and he's, and he was describing the scene after everything was going very well. Uh, most of them were dead, some were giving up, some were diving off the boat where there was sharks waiting. And some, the smart ones, were fighting for their lives because they knew there would be no quarter. And they even killed the ones that gave up because they did not have any mercy for slavers. Yeah, they definitely have chips on their shoulder. I think a couple of the crew actually were from the slavery background and broke free. Torius is, he's that swashbuckling buccaneer kind of guy. And he's a, I found, if I could, if I could mark a flaw, was that he kind of felt invincible. I kind of was never really worried about him. Even the times he was hurt, within the next three sentences, he got a healing potion. I, um, I wasn't really. I, that's aware. actually how I feel about a lot of the, <laughs> the book. Actually, that's yeah. actually a point I have. Yeah, I never, I never really felt scared for any of the characters because everyone was wearing what appeared to be a bandolier of healing potions. <laughs> and anytime anyone got hurt, they started chugging them down. To be fair, Celeste literally wore a harness full of stuff. To be fair, yes, <laughs> yeah, which makes sense within you know. If you're, it's kind of almost like power gaming Pathfinder. They just had <laughs> sacks full of all the important stuff you need. Uh, but yes, uh, he did feel invincible to me a lot of times, and he certainly like was a good captain because every time he told his crew and boat do stuff, they succeeded. Not only invincible in battle, but even during his spy segments, he never even got like close to being captured. Mm-hmm. Like no one suspected him for a second. And I gotta say, my favorite parts of this book was the spy stuff. So, so when we talk about Revenal, since that's about the spy stuff, she was my favorite character in the book. She owned not a brothel, but essentially like an, an a gentleman's club sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, that she she um, served a lot of chelish soldiers and of the navy there, since they're in a coastal town. Um, believe it or not, did you know that the author has background at the sea? 
Oh, uh, I should have. I should have mentioned that. Yeah, he does. I certainly could have knew that because he used so many words and terms that I did not understand. There was a glossary in the back that I did not take advantage of and didn't understand a lot of stuff. Just try to use context clues. Every scene that has takes place on like the a boat is very very well written and obviously very accurate using a lot of nautical terms and i didn't know what they mean but i was like that's probably right it's probably all really really right vreva i liked her a lot she was a sorcerer she had a cat familiar matthias uh who was kind of a little bit annoyed me i like the idea of it i like how she the author um chris explores so many chris's on this gosh darn podcast this is the fourth chris um chris explain that connection between the two and how they could feel each other and what they were doing and when one felt sad the other felt sad one was elated the other one was elated that was cool i like that but it bothered me i was like i do not care what this cat feels right now get back to super cool spy stuff occasionally i do like it but my opinion was a little overused but when he used it you know at least the first couple times i was i enjoyed it and i was like that's cool Vreva was part of one of my favorite scenes, my actual favorite scene of the book, the fight between her and the witches. Because you would expect a fight between a bunch of spellcasters to be like, uh, you know, they cast one fireball and it's over. Mm-hmm. But that was the grittiest, most, like, almost disturbing yep. fight in the book. They got, they were throwing each other in coals and they were all seared up. The fireball didn't kill them, it just horribly seared the majority right. of their body, but they mm-hmm. were still standing and fighting. Yep, we'll get to that when we do the synopsis. But to, to put a little little button on Vreva and why she was my favorite is every time we went back to her storyline, I was super interested. I wasn't always interested in Celeste, Jatorius, and their relationship. Um, but her thing really kept, actually was, I think, the focusing push of the book because she was really in there getting that info about the secret weapon and learning stuff and she was the one taking risks a lot of the times she was the one disguising herself she had this disguise self spell she used all the time and it was talking about how she could expertly change her gait to be whatever she want she wanted to be a burlish sailor she could be and i always enjoyed those parts where it's like oh please don't get to found out especially what we're going to talk about later when she was with the witch's coven I thought it was great. And then there's a good portion where she has to stay as one person on an enemy boat for a long time. The whole time it was like, oh, no. Uh, but I, she really drove the book, in my opinion, my favorite character. Oh, she definitely drove the book. But uh, the vehicle at which she used to do that, I kind of didn't like. If I Similarly, how you thought Torius was invincible, I didn't think Vreva was necessarily invincible. I just felt like she could honestly do anything needed of her. Her spell casting, apparently, she has silent and still spell prepared for every single one of her spells. <laughs> so no one has any idea that she's casting su- charm person, suggestion. Um, she must have a couple ranks in Rogue as well, because she had, like, these poison needles and used poison a lot. That's uh, the Calistria stuff. She's called the Sacred Sting. Ooh. Uh, that's why all of her stuff was very poison-themed, which I actually really like. She probably did multi-class Rogue. <laughs> <laughs> and then there's Celeste, who is the love interest of Torius and she is as we said a lunar naga and let me give you props to this I love in a world of multiple races I love the idea that two different races can fall in love I like that a lot and they were talking about like just a random naga in the middle of town is like what the heck is happening but nobody on the crew gave a crap about they're like well these two just love each other whatever I love that very very much she does walk around disguise a lot of the time. She, I don't think she's very commonly in her full Naga form. Right, unless they're alone on the boat. But her love interest with Torius made for some awkward moments when Torius had to sleep with people to 
get by in a super secret spy mission. Ah, the life of a spy. So difficult. So many people you have to sleep with. I do want to mention that I was very uninterested in all those scenes. We we talked about before in episodes how to do sex well in, um, not in real life because I couldn't give you that advice, but in game. (laughs) And then in the book, uh, Bloodbound, the first book we did for uh, Book Fair, how they did it well here. I mean, I'm glad they didn't go into the descriptions, uh, but I was just like, almost seemed like needlessly abundant. Yes. Oh, my God. As one scene in particular, she's just assuming a human disguise. And it's like, oh, her her tail has to split into two legs like humans. And then it just throws in, like when me and Torius make love, I have to do that so we can make love. I was like, mm, do you like... I'm not disturbed by that. I've been on the internet before, but did that really have to be thrown on at the end of that sentence? There was I think we could have lived without that. Well, later on, they did actually make love, and she went into uh, she split into human form. But um, there is a page. Let's see, page twenty-two. Let me get to this. There is a scene where um, L- Lothar Akathos, who we should mention in a second. Um, well, actually, we'll mention that now. L- L- Lothera. I don't know how to say. It. I thought it was Lothreda, but now that I look at it, it's just Lothera. Lothra like Kothos was this chick who was just the biggest asshole I've ever read about. Um, and she was the, not, I don't know what it was called. She was like the harbor master. That was it. Yes. She was the harbor master. So Torius, having go to this dock as a pirate privateer, had to uh, get in with her to get information and get you know different advantages. So he tried to get romantic with her and slept with her. And when uh, Torius got back on the boat, at one point, Celeste says, um, They never spoke of what happened, but Torius was always upset when he returned. He usually spent the rest of the evening drinking. Celeste knew he was having sex with Lothara. Her sense of smell was too keen to miss it. Gross out much, is what I thought as soon as I read that. And <laughs> I kind of felt that way mostly with the sex scenes here. In my opinion, they just weren't done very well. It's not, I wouldn't say there were scenes, but like you said, they're just kind of like casually suggested, yep. which is fine. People can have casual sex, but I just didn't feel like it added a lot to my reading experience. Right, and you can even ca- casually mention non-casual sex, but I don't know, just something about it. I couldn't give you, I'm not a writer, I can't tell you what the good version is, but I can just tell you I didn't like it much in this book. And by the way, we'll, we, we should talk about uh, the captain of the awesome, huge, three-tiered boat. Um, well, you had mentioned Lotheta. Let's let's get on her because you said sure. Reva was your favorite character. I think Lotheta was my really favorite character. Hated yes. her so much because uh, she is one of the only characters with an arc. Like she changes throughout the book, and you like you learn why she, you said she was a big asshole. You learn why she's like that, or at least like I wouldn't say it's justification, but like she does act like that for a reason. And then eventually, when she's like uh, Vreva points it out to her after reading her mind and reading her insecurities, like she's basically projecting her insecurities and trying to cover them up. And Vreva's like, you know, you should try being nicer. Like people don't appreciate that. And she like got introspective. She was like, oh crap, you're right. And she ended up changing. And she like dressed up real nice and started treating people nicely. No, no, incorrectly, incorrect. She started treating Torius nicely. That's it. <laughs> well, she's still the harbor master. <laughs> she's got to be hard on other people. I actually didn't like her. I thought her arc was shallow somebody just told her to be nicer and now she's nicer the only part that actually hit with me was at the very very end of the book when she changed because someone who she was beginning to love died that one made sense to me that seemed real to me and to be fair it's not just anyone told her to be nice it was the super sorceress reading her minds and picking apart her brain to do that it's not like her friend just came up to it's like someone literally read their mind Mm -hmm. and knew exactly what to say 
So Fury's crown is this huge ship. I mean, the ship are practically characters themselves. It's got three tiers of ballistas. There's no black powder, I guess, at this point. And uh, its captain is Lance, and the admiral is Ronald. And that was somebody that Vrevera had to uh, kind of coalesce information out of by sleeping with. And she mentions that it's like, eh, he's a guy, ew, cooties. Uh, so she tries to get him and successfully gets info out of him to try to learn, and that's kind of the, my favorite part, the, the, the mystery learning of what's happening. Unfortunately, the mystery was completely ruined for me by the cover of the book. <laughs> spoiler alert. We didn't have to say spoiler alert in the beginning because you get to look at the front cover and be like, oh, It's a giant monster dude. And uh, we're like, I wonder. Okay, but we'll talk about that once we finish with characters. Let's talk about um, one of the evil characters, the witch. Her Bush, name Bushustra? Bushretta. I can't really say her name right. <laughs> Bruschetta. The worst, most nasty person you will ever want to meet. And she has a vest of of human flesh. And she was from terrible. um, what was it? She was from the tribes of the north. I can't remember their name. But it, the way she acted and like uncivil, uncouth is the way of the people she is from. So that was very accurately represented. I believe. Oh, is that right? Yes. I thought she was just a big asshole. That too. She is also a total biatch. <laughs> but uh, it's also because she's from like uh, tribes, you know, like kind of a tribal sort of lifestyle. And they forced her into a city because she has these powers. Gotcha. So anyway, she is the person that kind of is key to controlling this weapon, is aboard the ship, is aboard Fury's crown. And and so that's somebody that Vreva is trying to try to figure out and follow and try to learn from to get this info she was nasty character i kind of liked her as a villain yeah definitely it's it's bush atra uh there you go bush atra she was to me more of a villain than most of the other characters i was more interested in what bad things were gonna happen to her otherwise it's just kind of like this empire and the political intrigue of this empire of people you'll never meet she was a <laughs> tangible real villain and she probably she gets a lot more screen time than the other ones i say screen time when we're reading a book but you understand the right. <laughs> idiom like, we, we get that whole side um, story with the witch's coven that she was with mm-hmm. to really flesh out her character just a bit more. Whereas when we see Admiral Ronald, we really just see him having dinner with Vreva, and that's it. And there's a bunch of other characters that we can go into but we're not going to, uh, like the bosun, the half-orc guy. Because mostly they're all pretty much just like one-note characters. The bosun, big, tough orc dude. Schnick is like this wild-haired... Um, Gnome engineer kind of person. Gnome engineer kind of thing. Wasn't it halfling, though? Or was it gnome? She was a gnome. That's gnome. why she had the hair. Gotcha, gotcha. And, and so, like, she was wild, and she loved fighting and making cool weapons and stuff. And so there's all these things, which I'm not saying are bad. I think we, we've talked about so many times the difference between tropes and stereotypes. I'm okay with these tropes. I think they fit, and you need some steadies to go around while other characters develop. But uh, I don't think they're worth going in-depth about. We'll talk about them as they come across them in the story. <laughs> right. I wasn't like, I want more schnick. <laughs> why is schnick the way she schnicks? <laughs> How much schnick could a schnick schnick if a schnick schnick didn't schnick schnick? <laughs> One other character I want to mention is the little boy. Uh, Yami. 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 One of the names I actually kind of liked. Yami is a little boy who has these terrible growths all over him that kind of look like crab chitin. And he has these blue eyes. These like ocular blue eyes. And he is somehow involved as we'll talk about in the story. But I liked him as just an innocent boy. They... It was a very purposeful, you could tell by the author, making him an innocent boy for the decisions that come later in the book. And I liked him. I liked him as a constant innocent boy. Yeah, definitely. He uh, That was nailed down very accurately. He didn't need a lot of depth. 
and I think the way he proceeded with, like you said, just being an innocent boy as a backdrop to, like, all the horrible pirate stuff going on mm-hmm. uh, was very well done. And he was actually kind of friends with the witch. It, they kind of insinuated maybe through a spell or something. But the point was the boy was so desperate for somebody, anybody, to take care of him, even if it was this nasty person. He kind of would talk to her and confide in her and liked her better than the evil devil dude to a drowning devil whose name is ridiculously difficult. Agachek. Something like that. Yes, very difficult to say, and he's very annoying uh, when it comes to the ability to bother the, the crew. I'm very glad I, I'm not a Chalaxian, and I have to. I'm forced to pronounce devil names correctly every day, or I'm probably killed. <laughs> so I'm going to take a shot at right, Angulathek, and Gilathek, something along those lines. Before we get into the plot synopsis, I want to talk a little bit about the storytelling uh, abilities um, of the author. There was a lot of times where I kind of found them lacking when it came to his verbiage. I praised the last guy that wrote um, Bloodbound because uh, he just he had such a, a great vocabulary. And this guy, a lot of times he would like reuse words. Even if it's an accurate word, you'll notice whenever you write a sentence or two sentences that if you use the same word quickly in succession, it's a problem. Right. Um, it was a beautiful girl in a beautiful town. Okay, we'll make one of those words something different, right? And he he wouldn't do that. He would actually use the same word over and over again. He had actually had a couple phrases that were used a lot in the book that you could tell like his pet phrases and he had forgotten he had used before a bunch of times. And just that repetition is a little bit fatiguing, I think. Yeah, it was so- something about the writing. Um, I-, I felt the same way. I can't really pinpoint it like you uh, have. Um, just something about the writing to me felt off. Um, like you said, not as... Um, eloquently worded as sure. uh, other books I've read. I will say there were, there was definitely some standout points. I love the description of Celeste stargazing. Um, there's a point when Celeste has to take on a transformation and she has to appear as somebody, and she says, uh, "The book says Celeste gazed into the mirror, right into the eyes of a dead woman." And I was like, "Ooh!" Like they gave me like chills before I read the rest of it and found out it was somebody who was dead. My initial thought was when you take on. Uh, an alter self spell like something about the eyes is just dead but you know, find out a little bit later she actually was taking the form of somebody she knew and who was dead um, but it was just uh, there was once in a while where he would have these phrases these standout phrases or standout moments or descriptions that I did enjoy One my personal favorite was um, most of the scenes with the drowning devil in them the devil um, obviously doesn't think in the same way mortals do. And through his speech, um, you really got that idea. His description of the dead air around the devil. Mm-hmm. His He doesn't have to breathe. He doesn't have to move. He just sits and waits patiently because he doesn't have any of the restrictions of mortals. That was some of my favorite descriptions in the book. Definitely. And despite the fact like Chalaxians interact with those things every day, it still felt very foreign to us as the reader, the way the devils acted. All right, guys, roll initiative. Does it have a weak spot, <laughs> and how many feet away is it from it? Has anything in Pathfinder had a weak spot yet? And while we're on the subject, can a dragon fit in the room we're fighting in? Well, it depends. They <laughs> wouldn't have Crisco in their equipment list? Yeah, I picked it up. <laughs> Last time we were in town, I grabbed it. Oh, well, yeah, then definitely. Absolutely. Well, Kev, I have a question. On my character sheet, it says you gave me half a million gold last episode. Oh, is that right? Yeah, I, I got that, too. I, I wrote that down. <laughs> if we could not be children for, like, three seconds, I would like that. So pretend that you're having fun for once. But they entertain themselves pretty darn well. I shoot it in the face. Of course you do. Without any diplomacy, it's right in the face. You shoot it. It's a Medusa, you said? Yeah. 
yet another copyright infringing non-original <laughs> <laughs> character. I, I'd like to roll a sense motive on the DM, please. The GM, I'm sorry, I don't want to not say copyright. DM, man. We just got not. Wow. Don't you want to get us copyright strike? You guys have iTunes here? Obviously, you have Tolkien here, so... <laughs> Tolkien came across and his elves and his dwarves. <laughs> Did you like what you just heard? A couple of guys hanging out, role-playing? That was Trailblazers, our actual play podcast. You can find it every Tuesday right here on the Trailblazer Network. Hope to see you there. That's it. Rocks fall. Everyone dies. Everyone rolling their character. <laughs> <laughs> I have a feeling this is going to take a lot longer than 10 minutes. But let's go, let's go on to the story. Let's talk about it. The story starts off with kind of like a rushing moment but it was so convoluted not convoluted it was so compact there were so many things that wanted my attention at once that it took me quite some time and quite some pages before i got everyone's names and characters straight yeah the the very opening scene of the book you have i think there's four or five characters total uh once the scene gets collected and two of the people are disguised, referring to each other as different names, but two of them are disguised as the same yes, person. It, it's so and it was incredibly confusing at first. Yeah, it was it was difficult for me. But once I got it, I got it. But at the beginning it was tough. Yeah. But the the story goes on as there's uh, you know Vreva there's this, you know, of course there's the crew of Torius and then there's Vreva and, and they're both trying, like you said, trying to figure out what, what is happening here with this whole situation with this secret weapon that they've heard of. And Vreva does a lot of the it kind of like switches back and forth between perspectives. Not like every chapter like Bloodbound did, but just like the way a book would do, it has kind of alternate a bunch of storylines that kind of intersect. And her thing was she's going out there and she's listening and while she's listening to all the sailors and casting her spells and letting her familiar cat go around and listen to everybody she she hears word of the secret weapon and that it's on this ship called Fury's Crown. And so she's like, I'm going to go try to seduce the Admiral, see what I can get out of him. And as she goes there, you know, she has different like backups, like I have a poison needle in case I have to, but I really don't want to because it's going to bring a lot of crap down on my head. I want to get. I think she even suggests she may have to kill herself with it at some point. Yeah, yeah. There was it. some background where she had been tortured before. They didn't tell us. Maybe it was one of the previous books, but it was so bad that she said, I'll never let it happen to me again. And she was willing to die than rather be tortured again. So she gets information out of him, and it's a very, like, secretive, like, the whole time she's trying to cast spells without him noticing. She is silent, but she has to use the somatic components, and she's trying to get the spell and try to read his mind. And once she gets it, she, like, starts getting him hardcore, and she, by the way, another thing about the whole sex part I didn't like, there was a part where Matthias was doing cats, and it was talking about how Vevra was kind of feeling the feeling he was feeling while he was doing cats, and it was like, I could so do without this right now. Oh, <laughs> uh, that, that happened while she was on the ship with the admiral. But they find out that it's some sort of weapon that destroyed an entire city. To further figure this out, she sees that there's a witch coming on and off this boat, and she she finds out that it's it's some sort of integral part. And I love the way the author does not give us enough information. He just gives you little little bits, little bits that give you just enough like, oh, he's she's important. She does something with the weapon. So we need to go figure out what that something is. And I've gotten all the information I can out of this guy, so I've got to go see what what happens with her and try to read her mind and see what that answer is. And once you got that, you still have more questions and you can go to somebody else to answer. So it was a good way of pacing. The pacing was definitely good, I thought. 
I'm trying to remember because this, like, what you're stating is like almost the first half of the book, and you're only telling Reva's part. And I'm trying to remember what on earth Torius was doing other than um, hanging out with Lothreda. Oh my gosh, I'm trying to too. <laughs> I know he hangs out with her, tries to get information out of her. Then he has to go report to. Oh, he has to go report to his boss in a different town, and on oh, the right, way and that's goes when they do the, the whole Slayers. pirate bit. Yeah, yeah, that's what happens. Then he has to come back. So he has this whole side story. So really, Reva is the backbone of the story. Torius is actually all going, doing something else. <laughs> they go uh, fight some slavers they find on their way to getting the information. Their boss tells them... They got hey, a book go. in the first cup, in the first chapter that they had, a code book they had to deliver. They go... She gets to the informant, and they're like, hey, go find about about this weapon, and they get back, and Reva's basically like, yeah, no, I know. <laughs> yeah, I got all this info. Here you go. Uh, but the, the idea was they had to do this all with subterfuge and espionage because... Um, no, no side wants to look like they attacked first, right? So mm-hmm. what they call them, the Grey Corsairs, was the the army, the, the good guys, quote-unquote. They couldn't just come in and sweep in and destroy the boat to destroy the weapon because they'd be like, like a random attack out of nowhere. They do learn the plan of the weapon, which I think is important. Um, Chelyax's plan is to unleash this weapon because the weapon apparently looks like a force of nature. They unleash the weapon in an Andoran town, which will wipe it off the map nearly. A key town. And then they'll try to rebuild. Or one that Cheliax could easily reach. And then once they try to rebuild, Cheliax comes in and offers aid to rebuild, because who would refuse aid? And they kind of have to, otherwise it looks bad. And then through that aid, Cheliax will try and gain control of that town, and then try and get a foot in the door to Andoran's government and things like that. And, and, yeah, the whole idea of coming in and, oh, what's this so bad? Let me help you have aid. What's that? My army's here now? <laughs> that is a, a time-honored. I think I even kind of did that in one of my campaigns. It's a it's a, it's a a well-worn trope. Uh, but they were going to do that. So, anyway, Forever follows this witch. And then what you were talking about, like, one of the coolest parts of the book, when he's following, when she's following this witch, she finds out she's part of a coven. And they all exchange spells with their familiars. Uh, you find out later the witch... Shatra has a viper, uh, another one has a rat, another one has a toad. I forget what the fourth one was. She's trailing the coven, and that was my favorite part of the book, because Reva really got a free pass when she's spying on the, like, sailors in the bar, because they don't know what the heck magic mm-hmm. is. They're drunk, and she's just like, <laughs> read mind, <laughs> read mind, right. a charm person. But when she tries to use those tricks on the witches, she can't because she knows they will recognize what's happening. So she's really got to start getting crafty. And there was a time when she tried, and, like, tried to do it secretly when she was disguised self, and ran to him like, hey, you got a light? And at the same time, she's trying to cast a spell. And then she's like, mm, I just can't get through. There's something about the switch. She must be too familiar with magic. I guess kind of representing that will save. So anyway, she, she follows the coven and finds out that they're... Bashatra's using them, kind of using their powers in a way to cast a spell to see into the future. To see if what she's trying to do here is going to work out. And at one point when they read the future, one of the witches runs out. And the guy yells back, what are you doing? That can't be true. You don't believe that vision. And she's like, I don't care. I'm out of here. And, and that, that person leaves. And so, of course, Vevra's like, I can use this. Goes over to that person's place later, disguises another witch in the coven. By the way, the witch doesn't have to be female. There was at least one guy in that group. Co- yeah, I think two of them were uh, male witches. Yep. Comes in and says... Uh, kind of like male nurses. <laughs> you feel like you have to designate the gender. <laughs> comes in and, and she comes in as that person who ran away, just one-on-one with one of the other witches and says, you know, hey, I guess I was, you know, I was too worried about it. And was just trying to get him to say what the vision was. And he eventually just says, listen, I don't even know a fireball spell. 
All right. So I can't, I couldn't even do anything about you. She's like, okay, you're all right. Something goes wrong. She has to kill the guy. And then she impersonates him. <laughs> if I remember, she hits them with a wine bottle. Yes. And then the cat. So she didn't use something. magic. She, like I said, that was my favorite part because though she got a free pass for the rest of the book, the, the rat sniffed her out. The rat familiar was like, hey, wait, this doesn't smell yeah. like who you were talking to. And she's like, oh crap, grabs a wine bottle and brains them. Yep. 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 And there's a part where she was trying to use her crossbow or something. She had like a, a hand crossbow or some wrist crossbow that didn't quite work because a bottle fell or something. And which was going to use a spell. And the cat like accidentally knocked over a bottle as it was jumping at the rat. And like it blocked the spell. Anyway, so she, she now impersonates that witch. Since they weren't expecting that fourth one to show up anyway, right? Who expects a fourth witch? Right. Uh, I guess actually no, the fourth one ended up showing up for whatever reason. Uh, so she gets into the coven, and while she's in there, you know, she's, like, so freaking worried about them figuring her out. But she, like, took the rat and put it in its, her pocket so she smelled like the old dead familiar so she'd have the right smell. And she had poisoned the wine before she got in there. And she got all of them to drink it, and it was very difficult to get Bushraja to drink it because she didn't like drinking. She was very nasty, and she was like, you're spoiled great juice is stupid. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and uh, but The other witches were very civilized. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I think they were actually Chalaxian, or they weren't from Chalax, uh, Chiliax. They were definitely from some civilized area where she was like a brute. So they all drank a lot. Bushraja drank just a little bit, wearingly. And then they all went down to go cast a spell um, to try to see the future. Apparently, Bushatra could not see her own future. She had to see other people's futures. And so she made a deal with them. Hey, listen, when I become rich, I'll give you guys some of the money. And they were all worried about, like, no, you won't. She's like, what I'm trying to do... Is see if you guys are actually rich. Because if my, in your future you're actually rich, that means I got my money and my plan worked. If I wasn't planning on actually giving you the money, this would be useless. So shut up and go downstairs so we can do the spell. I'll give it was you- also the uh, spell sharing thing because you got the idea that they didn't want to do that because you're kind of just handing over your power to someone else so you teach them all your spells. Mm-hmm. And they're like, all right, we'll let you learn all our spells, all the you know arcane knowledge we've accumulated through our familiars, but you have to do – we want the money. Right. So they go down and they do it. And, and this marks one of the first moments where an innocent person had to die and the and the main characters, the protagonist, had to just watch. There was this old slave lady, apparently. That was one of the, the witch's jobs was they sold old slaves to people. And uh, they sacrificed her to, to use the spell. Apparently the spell component was one human life, I guess. And uh, while they were all chanting the spell... They started dropping one by one from the poison. And Vera feigned that she had, oh, no, the poison, she's fallen too. <laughs> and Bushatra is not really, it's not really affecting her very much. So um, before she could be figured out, Vera tried to attack. And that's where what is Christian's favorite scene, and probably my favorite scene as well, happened. The, I think one of the other witches that was semi-conscious was still up. Vera had to far- fry them with a fireball. Bushatra figures out what's going on. They start a battle. And like I said, you expect a, a spellcaster battle just to be like, Boop, 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 ah, you're dead. They went boop, back boop, boop, and forth. They knocked, like, three <laughs> weapons out of each other's hands. Uh, like I said, uh, Vreva shoots a fireball, and it scorches the majority. Which verbal of- component is boop, 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 ah? <laughs> it's an Italian spell. <laughs> it scorches the majority of Bushatra's body, but she's still fighting. Um, someone tips the cauldron over, and the scalding liquid, like, burns their body, and they get boils all, all over them. Bushatra gets a spell where, like, there's an ooze, and she slaps the ooze on Vreva, and it starts eating Vreva's skin, so she's got to shove her arm yep. into the pits of the coals to burn it off of her, all while still trying to hold off Bushatra. Who's using, like, like her hair to his whips. 
Like, Vrevo was definitely my second favorite character, if not my first. I'm not sure between her and Lotheta, but that scene was definitely my favorite, because no more free passes for Vreva, no more free casting spells. She had to prove that she deserved to be where she is, and she definitely deserved it. Yeah, and it was it was a fun just to have some fighting that was real... That was the closest one I saw to somebody who could maybe die, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, even though I still kind of felt like she was going to make it. And they had an awesome fight, and, and there's still some of the thing, like her arm wasn't permanently singed forever. Healing potion, and she was fine. Kind of disappointed about that. I would like she, it. No, she limped over to the ship, Torius's ship, and they were like, don't worry, we got you. Glug, 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 That's exactly glug. what happened. <laughs> but the cat almost died because the viper bit the cat, the cat, but she gave it some sort of potion that would cure poison but didn't heal it, so just kept it alive. Took it out, burned the place down on top of all of them. Got some magic items. I always loved... It was like PC looting. She was like looting all of them. Like, ooh, magic item, magic item, magic item. She did that with the first one she killed. She's like, ooh, 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 what's this? <laughs> oh, yeah, she used detect magic. She was like, ooh, what do we got here? Yeah, snatch, what do we got snatch. here? Uh, she should be the pirate. But that was a no, cool she scene. She doesn't need to be a pirate. She's a sexy sorcerer spy. Here, here's, here's a perfect illustration of the author getting so close to getting it right. Like, that moment was cool when the witch caught on fire from the fireball spell. It's like, oh, it's like her vision. And then the next line is book, her vision was fulfilled. I got it. I get it. You don't need... I'm it's not, like an anime. Treat me like an adult, please. I get it. I read the book. You I read mean the last that book. vision? <laughs> so, that was a little disappointing. But it, it was still cool. It was a cool little moment how that, that, came, that vision came to life. All it needed was other people observing the fight saying, oh, she used a fireball spell. A fireball spell? Yes, it's a spell where you <laughs> set the other person on fire. Oh! <laughs> in a ball of flame. Cool fight. Um, anyway, so she she ends up going on the ship as Bouchetta, or that's a type of food. Bouchatra. Thank you. She gets on the boat. She plays the witch perfectly. She's super nasty and mean. I thought that was a great scene when she goes in and she talks to the devil. And is the moment she talked to the devil's like, I don't know if he can instantly tell I'm faking or not. I had to take the risk. And when she gets to it, things like, what are you doing? Uh, welcome back. Watch the kid. And he leaves. She's like, kid. She looks over. The secret weapon is a little kid. It's Yami. And she's like, what the heck is up with this kid? She's like, what the, is this the ending of Mass Effect 3? <laughs> <laughs> no, nothing could be as that bad. So she's she's nice to the kid, but she has to be kind of mean to try to get him to talk about the painful past to try to figure out what his weapon is. And he just said there was this time when I was very, you know, I just woke up. My leg was broken and everyone was dead. I just remember pain, blackness, everyone dead. And they were concerned, they had discovered that maybe magic activates whatever this weapon is because they weren't willing to teleport it. They were going to move it through an old uh, transport vessel. They were going to do that because they can't just have a naval warship go into that middle of an opposing city. So this is a random transport ship was their plan with, you know, the Fury's crown behind it as an escort way back. So they're going to transfer that. They're not going to teleport it. So she thought maybe magic activates this guy. But they don't even know what the weapon is. It's just some sort of thing connected with this kid that imitates a natural disaster. So she uh, able is able to go onto the other ship. She transfers the boy, and she gets transferred with him. And because the whole idea was that the witch had made a deal, uh, I know exactly how to a- activate the kid's abilities. You don't. I do. I'm going to keep that info for myself. You pay me. I'll get him to work. And she's she's willing to kill everybody. The people on the ship are going on a suicide mission. She's supposed to be the only one that gets out with the kid so that they can use it again. Uh, that and the devil uh, I can't pronounce his name but the drowning devil who's really creepy his hands are like a writhing mass of tentacles her being disguised as uh, Bushatra was definitely one of the uh, I think coolest parts of the book sure. because her way like you mentioned how she has to match her gait and her speech to uh, look like that person 
I think that was the like the best time where she really did that in the book, where you really she spent a lot of time with her and the coven, not a lot of time, but enough mm-hmm. that she they actually said like she studied her, they watched her as he talked, figured out her mannerisms, and then emulated them to perfection when she actually had to infiltrate. And they talked about her like, I hope I'm doing this right. I don't know if I'm doing this right. And every time I end up, she was just being too nice, and she thought she was being too nasty. <laughs> and she did that when she um, looked like she the slapped o- a guy. When she looked like the other witch, she actually did some things. They mentioned like, "Oh, I saw how they drink, so I knew they're going to drink, so I poisoned the wine." That kind of thing. She did. They did. The, the author again. We keep saying they. I mean, I keep saying they. Chris did a great job um, with her improvising and being a spy and having to take on other personas. So anyway, she figures out that most likely the kid's ability is not activated by magic, but by pain, because he remembers pain. Everything went black, everyone's dead, and he had a broken leg. I don't think they figured that out. I think he just gets hurt during the fight. No, no, I'm uh, sh- I remember she says she, that's her theory. Oh. Uh, yep, yep. Okay. That it is confirmed later in the fight. Oh, right, because he fell. Right. So anyway, what's happening with Torius right now is he's, he's kind of almost playing support to her role. <laughs> Again, we're going over synopsis of story, and Torius doesn't really come up. <laughs> <laughs> Though he's mentioned a lot, and you know, we should mention what's happening with Celeste. Oh, right. Celeste is literally an oracle. Possibly one of my least favorite parts of the book, being perfectly honest. And when I say literally an oracle, I mean literally to a T. <laughs> Looked at the oracle, you know, page on the SRD and was like, yes, this. She That's starts- like Inception, literally. Literally by the book and literally by another book that has rules in it. <laughs> That's like a double literal, triple literal for literal the way we use literal now. That's amazing. Another award the, goes to Christian. The, the way he represented the mechanics in Pathfinder in the book is actually my number one complaint about the book. She literally starts talking in tongues and doesn't know why. She literally gets spells on her spell list that she doesn't understand why they're there. At one point, she like she uses augury. She tells the future. It kind of gives her a vague understanding of the future. And one of the other characters is like... Why don't you just do that again? And she's like, I can't. I can only do that once a day. I was like, ah, couldn't you? Like, Bloodborne, like, when you look at Jaden's representation of her powers, of healing, of casting spells, always like, I get this feeling for my deity and I can channel it, but it's bound by my faith and sometimes my faith isn't strong enough. Whereas this is just like, I can do that once a day. Here we go. <laughs> oh, we have to go sleep for eight hours, guys. It's like she was looking at a, at her stat block, going through the papers. Like, let me see. All right. Uh, nope. It's once per day ability. Augury. Sorry. That Sorry, that guys. very much. I don't know how you feel about it, but that very much bothered me. <laughs> it bothered me a little bit. What bothered me more in that case was that fact that she always had one spell, and she used one spell all the time, and it was lightning, 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 and <laughs> well, Celestial Shield, and wait, what else are you going to use? Oh, yeah, lightning, lightning, magic missile. That was a nice change at the end of the book. Magic missile. Back to lightning, lightning, and give, super cool spell. Give, uh, shield. Caleb, give me, give me one second, Caleb, because I got to just go go to the SRD. I got to type in Naga, and I got I to gotta click on the link to the Naga and see her spell-like abilities. Lunar Naga. And I just got to take a look. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Spell like abilities actually not on there. Scorching right. Okay, <laughs> so it wasn't a Naga thing. No, no, it was, it was her, and she was almost kind of starting to become a cleric because this god intervenes on her life. And you wrote something funny here in the notes. Oh, you mean <laughs> my favorite? I think my favorite line in the book. She's she's very distraught about being an oracle because Desna's giving her powers and she doesn't know why. And she'd be like, "Well, what if she asked me to do something?" And she's really confused. She said, what could the goddess of the stars want with little old me? 
and she is literally a stargazing freedom fighter. <laughs> stars and freedom being two of the only domains that Desna cares about. <laughs> what could the goddess of stars want with me, says the stargazing, stargazing magically infused star worshiper. Like, I, that, that her arc her character honestly i didn't like one thing i really did like about her she was like i don't want to mess with a god i don't i don't pay attention to them sure. and i do right. not want them to pay attention to me if i worship desna if i t- accept these powers am i under some sort of legally binding thing listen we are against an entire empire that makes deals with devils i don't want to make a deal with a god i like True, that I, I, I do like her apprehension toward the subject mm-hmm. but it just it felt a little I don't know, not hold hat, but, like, it, it just got drilled down way too hard. Like, she never really came to terms with it. Mm. The whole time she's like, but what if, but what if, uh, but Desna, uh, uh, uh. <laughs> get, get over it, gosh. So, that's happening with Celeste, and then there is the final concluding battle where they're going to try to attack the boat, get Yemi, 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 Yami. They're going to get Yami and Vrevra, who's still disguised as Bouchetta off of the Bushatra, off of the boat, and now they have the weapon. They originally sent her to kill the weapon, but she's all like, it's an innocent boy, I can't do it, even though she watched an innocent woman die uh, earlier to for the greater good. they He tried to, author tried to qualify it and, and justify it with like, in my past, something happened. I'm like, this is the first I heard of it. It's like two sentences. I don't care. Kill the boy. Well, the thing is, she was looking for any alternative. She was always ready to kill the kid, and I think at some point she actually takes the shot, but she's too late. Mm-hmm. Like, she definitely was prepared to kill him, but she was looking for any alternative to not just murder this sad little boy. But, there, but like, that wasn't her original job. Her, she was going in there ready to, to, just to, to neutralize the weapon, and now it's... I just I thought it was, it was pretty forced, because we need to have a cool conclusion to this book with Monster Monsters. Anyway, so they're following this boat, and they have, they're finding their black sails again, which they're very happy about. Like, yes, pri- rest pirates, we can, instead of privateers, did, we can did actually... Did you see what happened at the end of Mass Effect 3 when you attacked the kid? Moving on. Uh, so they fly their black sails, which they're happy to do. They haven't been able to do since they turned to privateers, and they're trying to hide at night, and they're trying to sneak up on this dude. Or, and But their, their big concern is this. The, the, the drowning devil can teleport a lot. And they don't want him to teleport away with the kid. So they need to get in there and get everyone out. So they they end up having their hand is forced. They're trying to plan it, but they get spotted. And a flare goes up or a fiery arrow goes up from the transport ship to call aid from the Fury's Crown, which is a three-tier you know military vessel. It's huge. Usually it's escorted by a bunch of frigates, but it's just this guy. But it's still a huge... You can't beat this thing, at least not with the Stargazer, which was called the... What did they call it? Their secret name when they became privateers? They came, gave it a different name. I certainly don't remember. Well, anyway, it was the Stargazer was its main thing, and that's what it was before, and that's what they kept calling it as. And so they had to in- initiate their plans right away. And they go, and they grab the boy out, and they successfully get him, but it's very tough because this drowning devil keeps teleporting around, they're trying to get rid of it, and this thing is so powerful. It has this awesome ability to just make wretched, wretched seawater just appear in your lungs, and you just start drowning. You just, just like, stop everything and try to get it out just to survive. And- when it uh, initially uh, catches them, uh, he they have to fight multiple ones of them because it summons another drowning devil, if I recall correctly. It does, and that is a big no-no point for me, is that they killed it real quick. But this guy kept being a real big problem throughout the next four or five chapters. But the one that <laughs> appeared died within the same chapter. It was very bothersome to me. Um, but anyway, so they eventually do get the kid on their boat. <laughs> it was the devil version of a red shirt. <laughs> <laughs> 
So they get back, they get the kid back on their boat, and they sink the um, transport ship. I forget. I think they burn. Oh yeah, she shoots a fireball down in the in the, in the galleon, and it just burns. No, galleon's the name of a ship. But anyway, in the deep part of the ship, and it burns. So anyway, so they're trying to outrun this uh, this other vi- ship, but the Fury's crown is just too big, too fast. It's catching up with them, and they've got this drowning devil that keeps randomly teleporting and breaking all their sails and breaking their masts and being like, "Oh, are you slow now? Sorry about that." It teleports away. And I'm really glad that the author demonstrated just how overpowered teleporting actually is. They beat the snot out of this guy, and then he teleports away, comes back full health. They are as irritated as I am as the reader with this guy coming back. But I did like him as a villain, as, as a bad guy. He was still cool and definitely a threat. Like, you knew, like, this guy, we need to stop, find a way to stop him. He's very powerful. And he, any point, the game is over. As soon as he just appears, the kid, someone turned their back to the kid, and he takes the kid we've lost. So they're doing their best to keep someone with the kid at all times. By the way, Vrevera and Celeste hate each other, but they're both tasked with keeping the kid alive. They hate each other? I don't remember yep. that. They do. Why? Uh, I forget why, but they don't like each other. Well, Celeste is very snarky with her. Huh. I believe you. I, I finished this book a while ago. Right, yeah. I just so finished I the book remember. recently. That He finished the book like months ago. Whoops. Sorry. Sorry for being better than me at reading stuff and doing stuff on time. So anyway. I'm so much better at not having a life and having so much spare time to read this the time happened <laughs> the time ha- uh, it, it, everything is forced when they're about to meet the the drowning devil comes and attacks him and steals the kid away and as it steals the kids away kid away cracks his arm and the kid screams out a bellowing noise and his eyes his blue eyes get bright blue and the noise reverberate reverberates and shakes the boat kind of like I immediately thought of um, Pirates of the Caribbean when they have that big thing that summons the Kraken and it like hits the water and reverberates through the water. It was kind of like that, but it came from the boy and the water churned and almost instantly as if it was summoned, not as if it came from the deep and came up almost as if it was just materialized was this giant. It was the combination of the blob from that old movie and a crab huge monster. C figure a cover of book. Yeah. Uh, and this thing came along and they had to fight it and what could have happened was I wouldn't call as much a fight (laughs) as much as a oh god please help us what could have happened was we can't beat it alone the two ships team up and they try to fight it and they beat it in, in victory and there's some sort of conclusion met with the two of them what actually happened it was a whole big thing about saving Celeste oh uh and there was no real fighting it. They tried a couple things. There was a couple times when they shot it and it kind of retreated for a minute. It would do special things where it would like open its mouth underwater, kind of like when you take the plug out of your tub and it starts making a whirlpool. It would make this big, um, there's a maelstrom, it creates a maelstrom and they have their, their little ship, like the big ship is like, bump, uh, that was nothing. And the ship's like, well, oh my gosh, the, we're all going to die. Their, the pirate's ship, the main character's ship, is highly damaged at this point. Mm-hmm. And is sinking. That that I think that actually happened with the initial fight when they were trying to get the kids back, and like they were trying to get back before the ship sunk. Then they started getting attacked by the Fury's Crown. Then they started getting attacked by a big monster, and they had to ditch the ship. And they were actually trying to take the Fury's Crown for themselves so they could sail back on it. And there's a small dilemma there because the ship has so many memories of uh, fighting slavers don't care. and snake sex. <laughs> my favorite kind. So there was a time when. The boy dies. Uh, and that's to the point where you're saying Vreva was trying to shoot the boy. It's like it's too late because the crab impaled him and picked the boy up. Um, and 
And I think it was when the drowning devil was carrying. Good point. Yes, Yami yes, I remember away, now. Yep. And she tried to shoot him, and then he dropped. He actually hit his arm and dropped him, and that's what caused him to break his arm. I think. No, no, because the thing was our. Oh, anyway, the point was there is a point where the drowning devil has him, and the evil big creature is there, and it's in it. He hurts the boy because he, he squeezes his broken arm as he's taking him away. And whenever that draws attention and the creature impales him with, like, the spike. You know, like, crabs have those side legs, those little legs part, not the claws. It pales him with one of those. And the drowning devil is, like, no big deal. starts sliding himself off of this, like, pike. And there's this really cool scene where Torius has his best moment. When he goes up, he stabs a dagger into it, drops down, does, like, a, a slash with the scimitar, re-grabs the dagger, grabs the boy. And uh, and then another claw comes and he's like, okay, change of plans and just let's go. And he's like, I hope the boat doesn't hurt that much when I land on it. Because when the other claw comes, it it tur- it rips the drowning devil into two and finally kills him. But uh, as you know, as they're all crashing the ship and they're trying to recover, another thing comes and impales the kid, takes it up, and that momentarily distracts the creature. The creature kind of just like looks at the kid and is like, what's this? Did I do a bad? And <laughs> the ship sails away. Now it's like we're we're taking on water. We cannot survive. We've got to make some sort of Dear Fury's crown. So they make a deal. They're like they have Reva tell look as if the kid because they the Fury's crown doesn't know that the kid's dead and that's all they want is the kid. They're like we'll kill the kid unless you let my people on board. He's like never. He's like all right, test me and you can go back to your queen with your tails in between your legs and say you failed. And he's like fine, get on. But everyone keeps their weapons in their sheaths. He's like yeah, fine. And secretly he told everybody, hey, as soon as we're on the ship, we're gonna take the ship. Okay. All right, cool. <laughs> No We're gonna do the pirate thing. Get your pirate hats. Put them in your pocket. <laughs> we get on the ship. Put on your Jolly Rogers. Everybody got a bandana. All right, cool. Let's go. Um, so he, they do that, and they end up uh, taking the ship. And as they're taking the ship, the monster comes back, and they kind of like everybody pauses and go, you know what? Don't care about. We don't. Let's put put on pause the fact that we hate each other and just try to survive. And they try to fight the creature. And this big ship that was described as so formidable really doesn't get too much anything in the limelight. It doesn't, like, take down Stargazer or just rip into this creature. It doesn't get a lot of that, which I would have liked to see those two trying to work together and take down the creature. That would have been cool instead of what happened, in my opinion. So they they end up uh, shooting the creature. And then this whole thing, as you think it would be a climax of attacking this creature, but the climax is getting Celeste out of the sinking ship. And they send their Gilman to do it. I forget her name. She goes in. There's this whole big scene where they're trying to escape. And they get out. And the Gilman's like, oh, that's a herpaderp. And they're like, she's like, a herpaderp? Yeah, it's a big creature. This is the biggest one I ever saw, though. Took away, Completely took away the mystery of everything. Of being a weird, supernatural, awesome monster. It's like, oh, yeah, there's a bunch of these guys. Oh, did I, not, oh, did I forget to tell you about these guys? Oh, yeah, guys. Hey, there's these big things that you can use as weapons. Sorry about that. And I just felt like the whole thing with Yami was just so anticlimactic. Like, there's this mystery. Why is he attached to the beast? Mm-hmm. Like, why does it not care that it killed him? Because, like, you get the feeling that it's trying to protect him, I guess, which is why it comes when it's summoned. Yep. But you get no closure on that. It just kills him and then walks away and then comes back later to kill them again. So the big climax of the story, they take the boat, they kill the captain, Celeste gets on the ship, and the monster is distracted by all the dead bodies and eats his dinner and they leave and they've won. That's the climax. Man. Not particularly. Especially when you don't really I, I care sacrificed, about Celeste. I would have sacrificed Celeste for a better <laughs> Was not a fan of Celeste really much anyway. Um, though she was fleshed out more than some other characters were fleshed out. 
But that's about the book. And there's a happy ending where your favorite characters are like, I'm kind of nice now. And Vreva's back and she's like, ah, back in my brothel area. I'm so happy to be in this 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 gentleman's club again. Back to normal, right? And Matthias, you're still around. Oh, I'm so happy. The captain dies because Matthias had poison claws in case, you know, the kid was going to be taken and there's just nothing they could do but kill the kid. But they weren't able to kill the kid. So instead, the cat attacks the Captain Lance. And that's how Captain Lance dies. And he's like, oh, poison. It was kind of, I hate the poison thing. It's like, and he died real quick. Oh, okay. <laughs> Which is weird because he followed everything else in Pathfinder to a T, except the poison DC saves. <laughs> <laughs> Which are typically about 11 or 12. <laughs> and so that's about the conclusion. And, and Taurus and their pirates are like, yeah, we, we, we saved the day. And he actually put this weird little hook in there where he's like, I'm not sure where we'll go. Maybe in there, maybe even the inner sea region isn't for us anymore. I don't know if that's so he can continue outside of the Pathfinder universe or what he's trying to do. But he did put that in at the end there, and that's that's the book. Fine. Talk to me about magic. You have you have some thoughts about how magic showed up in this world. Um, Matt, the way magic was represented uh, was a little too accurate to the mechanics, uh, or excuse me, not even entirely accurate to the mechanics of Pathfinder. It properly displayed how magic is severely overpowered. <laughs> In Pathfinder, and how everyone who doesn't cast spells is basically at the whim of spellcasters. Um, Vreva, like I said, she just kind of walks around in her bar, and she's like, mind read, mind read. And I just found for spy work, that was really dull. Like, I feel like half of the, you know, fun of spy work is finding ways to get people to say certain things and finding out mysteries. And though I'm sure it was just a vehicle to speed along the story, because you're not always interested in how they get certain information, mm-hmm. it just really took away a lot of uh, intrigue, I feel, from the story when Vreva can just be like, oh, don't worry, I'll just walk over there and mind-read the person. Because, you know, in, in the Pathfinder universe, magic has somantic components. It has verbal components. It's very obvious when someone's casting a spell. But no one knows that Vreva is apparently like a level 20 sorceress. <laughs> like, the degree to which she casts spells is absolutely ridiculous. Yeah. It feels like I feel like nobody really ever ran out of spells. There was a point where she's like, I need to see for spells. Yeah, but, like, you did everything you were going to do that day. <laughs> you did it, don't lie. She's like, I'm almost out. Really? Now? <laughs> My conclusion on this book was many of the characters I didn't care that much about, so I was just waiting for the next part with Reva or, or Bruchatra or something like that, uh, and conclusions that were unsatisfying. What was with the kid? I love an air of mystery, but when it's so blatantly like, oh, you get to know nothing, not even something to let your little mind come up with theories. Just, nope. Nothing. Oh, and the creature is defeated by dead bodies. He's hungry, and there's dead bodies. That was <laughs> our secret weapon. <laughs> un- in this big, super huge ship, doesn't really do much. Um, so I don't know. It was unsatisfying. Oh yeah. By the way, and the part of the conclusion is they keep the Fury's crown, re- redo it so that it can't be mistaken as Fury's crown and becomes the new ship, the Sea Serpent or whatever. I wish during that last scene when the monster shows up. Actually, no. Between the fight with the devil, from the fight with the devil onward, I wish I had kept a tally of how many people drink healing potions. <laughs> there was a lot of healing potions. Like, like is it even the cook the, didn't uh, go. Even, he wouldn't even let the cook die. The cook's like, oh man, I'm gonna have to chop off my leg to survive. Nah, nah, we'll get it off you. Okay, cool, thanks. <laughs> the nameless cook that shows up in the last scene. <laughs> he does. He uh, doesn't have a name. I just don't remember it. It's like a shonen anime <laughs> with how many people didn't die. What was your conclusion on the book? Like I said, the air of intrigue and the threat of death were kind of lost with me. This book kind of epitomized high fantasy for me. Conventional threats don't work in high fantasy, and the vast majority of the book is conventional threats. The only really big threat to the crew 
is the devil, because the devil has even higher fantasy powers because it can teleport around at will and then heal itself. Um, and th- that just kind of lost it for me. Um, I, Like I said, there was a lot of points of the book that I really did like, like the fight scene between Reva. Most of Reva's stuff, honestly, was very mm-hmm, interesting. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the spy legwork was. But like the whole time, I was like I said, I was cringing when they said, oh, I can only cast this once a day. I have to rest for eight hours. <laughs> Something else that Pirate's Prophecy didn't give me that I got from Bloodbound was an understanding of the region that they were in. Whereas Bloodbound took place in Ustalov, which is kind of the strange area that's hard to really comprehend because it's like this spooky ghost area of Glorion, and we really got insight into how the people in that region cope with what they face and how their day-to-day lives get. I didn't really get any of that insight from Pirate's Prophecy. I don't really feel like I'm any more well-versed in Chalaxian stuff. I don't really feel like... I'm The only thing I'm probably more well-versed in now is ship lingo. <laughs> uh, with we learned a little about their navy and their and what they do while they're at port. Definitely nowhere near as much as sure, I got sure. insight into sure. uh, Ustala. Which, you know, it's not the book's job to do that, but it's honestly something that I really liked about Bloodbound. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. So, um, I don't want to give our, our books ratings, but I just want to rate the books of that we've read from our favorite to our least favorite. So, I'm going to put Bloodbound at uh, number one, and I'm going to put this book at number two. There we go. Yeah, I like that. All right. So, that was Pirate's Prophecy. We want to give a special thanks again for Diana for letting us uh, have these uh, review copies. And we've got another book. What's our next book, Christian? Our next book is called Hell Knight, and it's about just that, a Hell Knight. If you don't know, Hell Knights are any lawful alignment in Pathfinder. They're kind of like paladins, but instead of working against evil, you're working against chaos. Where most Hell Knights fall alignment-wise is lawful evil. They actually tend to take deals with Asmodeus, the king of hell, uh, the king devil. They take deals with devils to get their powers, and they fight against chaos, demons. Demons and devils are very different. Mm Mm-hmm in Pathfinder universe. So that'll definitely be an interesting book. I'm looking forward to that one because one of my players is going to be playing a Hell Knight in something I'm running oh, cool. soon. So I'm really hoping that um, the book can show some light on the order and give me some ideas. It's a hefty book. It's a thick book. There's also apparently a mother theme, which I'm not 100% looking forward to, but that's okay. <laughs> all right. Thank you all for attending this book fair. Class is dismissed. Pathfinder Academy is part of the Trailblazer Network. For other great Pathfinder podcasts, visit our site, tblazer.net. Want to get in touch? You can email us at tblazernetwork at gmail.com or follow us on Twitter at tblazernetwork. I've been Nicholas Laborde. Thanks for listening. Hey, Danny. Do you want to play some D&D tonight? Oh, I can't. My parrot's gonna have open-heart surgery again. That sucks. Yeah, it's gonna be super boring. Hang in there, Danny. She'll pull through. But remember, when you can't play, listen. At Tales from the Lich, we do our best to provide an immersive RPG play session with an ever-expanding library. When you can't play, listen. TalesFromTheLich.com